Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. This month for December, we are bringing you the scandalous lives behind the biggest holiday hits, and it is brought to you by AMC+. Plus. With a name like AMC+, Plus, you'd expect the plus to mean more, right? Actually, it means better. AMC+, Plus is a premium streaming bundle for content from AMC network brands, including Shudder, Sundance Now, IFC, BBC America, Sundance TV, and IFC Films Unlimited. That means you can spend more quality time with content you love. You know, only the good stuff. We'll be back later in the episode to tell you about some of the amazing series you can binge on AMC+. Plus where they're giving you only the good stuff. Nice. Desi, this week we're talking about legendary musician Nat King Cole. Love him. Who has, he recorded one of the most iconic Christmas songs of all time, aptly titled The Christmas Song. One of the best. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I never get sick of hearing that song. Is that so? Yeah. Aren't there certain Christmas songs you love? I was never like that into the Christmas song until I heard the original 1946 version this week. Oh. And it's the stripped down original recorded version with his band, the Nat King Cole Trio. And it's very simple. Yes. And you just hear like his voice and the subtle like piano and the bass and right. it's it's a beautiful version of that That's song. That's interesting because that was the one I had already always heard, like not the cover, other versions. I had heard his version growing up. No, he recorded several versions. Oh, he did? The one you're oh. thinking of is the one with strings. I mean, I know a lot of them though. This one is yeah. very simple, okay. stripped down. There's no strings. There's okay. no big production. It yeah. sounds like a demo almost. Oh, cool. I'm a big fan of that version, okay. but we'll <laughs> we'll get into that more later. Needless to say, right now, Nat King Cole. When I think of the holidays, yeah, when I think of him as an artist. Now, I did uh, read a book about his life called "Straighten Up and Fly Right" by Will Friedwald. This is a very extensive book on Nat King Cole's life and goes into a lot of detail about his music and jazz music, bebop music, swing music. If you're into music history in general, I recommend this book, specifically the kind of music that Nat King Cole was making or popular music at that time. Very thorough book. Okay, It's a dense book. Uh, So that's what I read for my main source for this episode, as well as various newspaper articles as usual. Let's get to it. Nat King Cole was born Nathaniel Adams Coles on March 17, 1919 in Montgomery, Alabama to Edward and Perlina Coles. For much of his life, Nat believed he was born two years earlier than he actually was. So he thought he was older than he was until he was around like in his 30s. That must be nice to shave two years off in your 30s. (laughs) 
Right? Yeah, that would be so bizarre, though. Yeah, th- I wonder. That seems like hard to do. I guess two years is in, is close enough that they wouldn't have a memory. Do you know what I mean of their childhood? I guess it so. Seems, yeah, but as a kid, being two years younger than you think you are, it seems like you'd be much different than the other kids your age. Right? Totally. Yeah. But yeah, apparently he was. Born in 1919, but for much of his life, he thought he was born in 1917. Oh. Uh, Like I said, it wasn't until he was in his 30s that he saw his birth certificate when he was applying for a passport that he's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Excuse me. (laughs) When he was four, Nat and his family moved from Alabama to Chicago. The Coles family was filled with musicians. Like Nat, his four brothers would all grow up to become musicians. Nat's father, Edward, went on to become a minister at their Baptist church, and their mother, Perlina, played organ and led the choir there. It was jazz pianist Earl Father Hines that would become one of Nat's biggest influences, specifically in Nat wanting to take up piano playing. When he was 10 years old, Nat became obsessed with music, playing piano any chance he got. In 1930, when he was 11, Nat was one of the 10 talent show winners out of hundreds of young kids in a competition put on by the Chicago Defender. The Chicago Defender was America's top black newspaper. Okay. And the prize for this talent competition was a turkey. Nice. (laughs) Like a, not a live turkey. But like a one to cook. One to cook and take home. That's a good prize. I mean, I'm not going to say no. Turkeys are expensive. They they really are expensive, aren't they? They really are. So Nat won this turkey for the next three years in a row. Ooh. He was good. And he could bring a turkey home for his family for Thanksgiving. That's pretty cute. (laughs) His mom must have been happy. Oh, my God. She's like, now, Nat, you know I didn't reserve a turkey at the grocery store. You better go win this competition. Go win me a turkey again. While Nat was in high school, he played in jazz bands around town at night. He was regularly featured in both the Chicago Defender newspaper and the Pittsburgh Courier. The Defender called Nat, quote, the leader of one of the hottest bands in the Midwest. Nat was a busy guy, and by the time he was 15, he was a full-time professional musician, so he had to drop out of school altogether to focus on this career. This is also when he dropped the S from the surname Coles. So if you heard me call him Coles in the beginning of the episode, that's because his birth name is Coles. Interesting. But he dropped the S and started going by Nat Cole. His band at the time was called Nat Cole and his Royal Dukes. In the summer of 1935, Nat and his band were scheduled for their first gig outside of Chicago in the town of Kankakee, Illinois. In between shows, the band members would go swimming out at a rock quarry. The band's trumpet player, 17-year-old Charles Murphy, disappeared during one of these swimming excursions. He was presumed to have drowned, but the body wasn't found even after expert divers went to search for it. The Chicago Defender reported that they would have to drain the quarry to continue the search, but they didn't find him. Oh my gosh. And obviously this tragic event was crushing for Nat. Yeah. In September of that same year, Nat performed in a battle of the bands, going head-to-head with his idol, Earl Hines. After this event, Nat and his band, now going by the name Rogues of Rhythm, scored a standing spot performing as the Savoy Ballroom's Sunday afternoon band. 
Around this time, Nat's older brother, Eddie, returned to the States after a long tour with his band and joined forces with his little brother to play music together. In 1936, Nat met dancer Nadine Robinson. She was 10 years older than him and one year older than his older brother, Eddie. Both the boys were smitten. They were like, she's hot. (laughs) And we get to go on a tour alongside her. Nice. Oh my God, this older woman. Nadine and the Cole brothers were about to embark on an American tour of the musical Shuffle Along. Nadine performed in the show and Nat and Eddie were in the pit band. Both these brothers fought the whole time. Wait, how old is Nat here? Nat is 17. Oh my gosh. And so she's 28. She's 27. Oh, 27. And the Eddie is like 26. Okay. So Eddie's like, fuck you, she's my age. Uh, yeah. And they're fighting over this girl. I mean, it's like disrupting stuff. It's like known yeah. between everyone else on the tour that these brothers are like at each other's throats over this girl. That's funny. And she's just like, oh boys. <laughs> Nadine. Nadine. That's such a hot name. <laughs> it, it really is a hot name. Yeah, I love it. I don't know a non-hot Nadine. It's like, you are a sexy girl. <laughs> <laughs> if if that's your name, Nadine, you're trouble. <laughs> I agree. Obviously, uh, this was like, you know, causing drama backstage. Again, these are two, like, re- I mean... Nat is like 17 years old. I think he thinks still thinks he's older at this point. He must. He thinks he's like 19. Oh, oh, that's right. But that's he's really 17 yes. at this point. He's but like, he's, I'm a man. I'm 19 years old. <laughs> but he's still considerably younger than... Oh, absolutely. Compared to Eddie is like close that's in age. That's a huge age difference. So you can see how irritated he was. Like, Ugh. excuse me, she's in my grade. And you know Nat was like, he had some game probably already. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> But in the end, it was Nat that she fell in love with. Oh. So she chose him. Eddie was fucking pissed. And <gasps> this would lead to a rift in their relationship for a while. Oh, no. Because it was like, I mean, they're Look, young Your younger guys. brother steals your girl, <laughs> yeah. the girl you want. That is very hard to recover from. <laughs> you need some time to lick those wounds. And he did. He left the tour. Damn. In December. Yeah. In December of 1936, Eddie split from the tour and went on to lead a band in Chicago. And on January 29th, 1937, just like less than two months later, 17-year-old Nat Cole and 27-year-old Nadine got married in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in a midnight ceremony at Club Indigo after one of their performances. Wow. That's cute. Yeah, I like it. I like a midnight wedding after a a show. A midnight wedding. That sounds fun. It was probably a lot of fun. The Chicago Defender ran an article about the newlyweds. By the summer of 1937, the tour arrived at its final stop in Los Angeles, where Nat and Nadine would end up staying. Nat found work performing at various black clubs around L.A., notably the Century Club on Beverly, where he met a 14-year-old Dorothy Dandridge. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. I know. Dorothy's mom hired Nat to write songs for her daughter's musical group, the Dandridge Dandridge Sisters Trio. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know they had this connection. That's right, because they were in Century City when they moved to LA, the Dandridge sisters. And they got the neighbor girl in the group as well. To right. Make it a trio. Right. That's right. So he wrote songs for them. He wrote songs That's for them. That's interesting. Dorothy and Nat would also go on to become lifelong friends. Aw, I like that. And another great tidbit that I really tried hard to track down some more information on, but I it, it appears to be that 
this info is in a biography about Dorothy Dandridge. That's that's as far as I got. Oh. But later on down, many years later, Nat and Dorothy would go on to like brainstorm their own television show together. <gasps> Ooh. They wanted to have a sitcom in the vein of I Love Lucy. Oh my gosh. That can, would have been incredible. Can you imagine? It's funny, because I, I had a bio on her, and I don't remember seeing this at Must all. have been yeah. one of the other... I mean, there's, another, there's more than one. Right, but right. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to know more information yeah, about this. Yeah, that interesting. Tragic and We should do happened. a show on, like, shows that almost were, like, ones that were in the works. That would be really Sometimes interesting. Sometimes I hear about shows that never were, and I get sad that they never yeah. were. <laughs> this is that time. Nat had this to say about the Los Angeles scene that he was in at the time quote the town was full of jazz all the bands were coming through and movie stars were slumming on central because this is where jazz was happening you'd see mercedes benzes cadillacs bentleys people like may west john barrymore john steinbeck all the stars black and white came to central avenue we might arrive there at two or three in the morning hang out until 10 or 12 o'clock the next day we rarely got tired. It was too much fun. Jack's basket room, Milamo's on Western, Last Word, the Turban Room, the Brown Bomber Brothers. So that's just a little taste of... I want to go to all those places. I know. <laughs> it sounds fun. In the fall of 1937, Nat formed the Nat Cole Trio with Nat on piano, Wesley Prince on bass, and Oscar Moore on guitar. Oscar was born on Christmas, so his friends called him Jesus Boy. <laughs> There's a lot of Christmas stuff in his story. Oh, that's interesting. And this is one of them. Uh-huh. That would be, I mean, what if your nickname was Jesus Boy? <laughs> I like how that's what they came up with. He's born on Christmas, Jesus Boy. <laughs> it's like the most first thing that comes in Jesus your head. Boy over here. <laughs> this is when Nat began singing. Now, he was just... Oh. Playing piano at this time. Okay. He was not a vocalist yet. And surprise, he also happened to have a beautiful voice. I love it. I mean, imagine not even, I don't, did he, he must have known he could sing, right? I mean, I, it's probably one of those things where he just would sing casually, but his voice is so incredible. It's hard to believe he didn't know. <laughs> I mean, I genuinely love his voice. Like, I think he's great. It's a beautiful voice. Yeah. Bassist Wesley Prince began referring to Nat as Nat King Cole after the nursery rhyme, Old King Cole. Oh. The trio had a standing gig at the Swanee Inn on La Brea that lasted until the spring of 1938. The band continued to have regular work around Los Angeles, and just a year after forming, the trio's songs appeared on the radio, and they were going by the King Cole Trio. He has a lot of like different iterations of his band names, and yeah, uh, I also love this period where everything had a nickname, and everyone had a nickname. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right? It just seems like that period, especially in music. Well, it was interesting that this guy Will Friedwald, who wrote this book. About all these like jazz and bebop and swing people from this like from the twenties on to like the fifties. He talked about how a lot of them had these like royalty names. Yes. Like Earl, Hines. Even though Earl was his given name, but he's like, that counts, it's an Earl. And uh, then he stuck Duke Ellington. Yes. And then some musicians had like Prez was one like uh, Lester Young, a saxophone. He he was called Prez. Right. Uh yeah, they did have that kind of royalty or like um head of state type names or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So Nat King Cole obviously yeah. is 
is in that same vein. I, I don't think I ever knew how he got King. And for it's possible it, would, it could even have been his middle name. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, right. No, it was from the nursery rhyme. That's funny. The first Christmas song Nat would record was actually Jingle Bells. Oh. I listened to it. It was a very jazzy version. Yeah. Obviously. The trio continued to appear on the radio for NBC on programs such as Swing Soiree, Old Gold, and Craft Music Hall. And yes, I looked it up. Craft Music Hall was, of course, brought to you by Craft Food Products. I mean, sponsorships have been happening <laughs> since the beginning of time. <laughs> I had to know. When I think of Craft, I think of eating an entire box of macaroni and cheese. Yeah. I mean, Kraft mac- macaroni and cheese. That's like, isn't that like in the ad? <laughs> like you call it Kraft macaroni and cheese. If I, if I appeared on Kraft Music Hall, I would expect to go home with a gift basket from them. Absolutely. What was the, oh, the one with Eddie Fisher? It was like Coke Hour or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eddie Fisher's Coke Hour. That's right. That's right. <laughs> In 1940, Nat would have a big hit with the song Sweet Lorraine. By 1946, Nat was away from both Los Angeles and his wife Nadine a lot. He was on the road or in New York recording music. This was the year that Nat decided to buy a nice home in L.A. for him and Nadine. But the residents of the neighborhood in Blueberry Hill were racist white people who were not happy about Nat and his wife moving in. They even took him to court trying to bar him from moving into the neighborhood. But these assholes lost their case and Nat and Nadine were able to move into their new home. Wait, Blueberry Hill? I had to look it up. (laughs) I had never heard of Blueberry Hill before. In L.A.? In L.A. I mean, I know the song. (laughs) I know the song too, but this is, I guess it's just an older neighborhood. I don't think, it's like... East LA. Okay. It looks like it's east. I think it's east of Boyle Heights. Okay. Let me, I look, did look it up earlier, but it's. Yeah, I've just never heard it. I don't, I, I think this is a defunct name for a neighborhood. Right. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I just know the Fats Domino song. Me too. Uh, so. So maybe this, they just don't even call it that anymore. It's kind of yeah. like how Silver Lake used to be Edendale. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, interesting. But the, this is the neighborhood they were trying to buy a home in. They did buy the home, and the neighbors were complete pieces of fucking shit. Uh, so, yeah. Unfortunately for Nadine, however, the relationship between her and Nat was coming to an end. The same year Nat purchased the home in Blueberry Hill, he met Maria Hawkins Ellington, a singer who once performed with Duke Ellington. No relation. Maria had come from a wealthy family in Boston. Uh, Nat and Maria's daughter, Natalie, would later go on to say this of her parents. Quote, She was a beautiful, light-skinned woman of elegance and refinement, and he was a dark-skinned man without a lot of education who could sing and play the piano. Despite his wealth and fame, Dad was the one who had married above his station, and my mother's family never let him forget it. During this time, Nat was performing as a solo artist, and he had a number one hit with the song for sentimental reasons. He was the first solo black singer to have a number one song on the pop charts. Really? Yeah. That's surprising. He, I mean, this, like, Nat, at this point, this is the 40s now, like, okay, this man, since he has started having a professional career, like, he has not stopped. 
yeah. at, at this point in his career. Like he has not taken any breaks. He's not had any lulls in his career. Right. He has been it's churning just up and up and up. He yeah. has been churning out music steadily. He's always had a gig. Yeah. He he is very popular and he yeah. just keeps gaining popularity throughout the years. Like it, it is not stopping. In 1946, Nat recorded arguably his best-known song, The Christmas Song. Now, this song was famously written by two Jewish men, Mel Torme and Robert Wells. Most Christmas songs are written by Jewish guys, this, right? This is something I learned when I was a lot older, is how many Christmas songs are written by Jewish men. Right, like Irving Berlin wrote White Christmas. Like, there's so many uh, it's funny. You know what? Some of us like Christmas, and I'm one of them. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a fun holiday. I love all that Frosty the Snowman shit. It's just a fun time of the year. And you can still do Hanukkah, too. I do Hanukkah. You know what? I do Hanukkah, but like newsflash, Hanukkah's not even an important Jewish holiday. No, and there's not that much stuff to do. <laughs> well, <laughs> look, we eat fried foods, and we teach children how to gamble. Exactly. That's what we do on Hanukkah. But Christmas has all like the decorations. Like I like seeing the lights. I like, do too. Yeah. I mean, all of that stuff's fun. And look, I know there's a lot of uh, Jews who don't celebrate Christmas, obviously. Like, but I am I am a Jewish person who always grew up celebrating Christmas. I like all the fucking corny Christmas music bullshit. Me too. I love it. I just like the way everything looks this time of year too. Like same. Like I just like seeing all the lights and the garlands and. The, Whatever. It's fun. I'm a fan. I'm a big fan. So this song was also famously penned in Los Angeles during a heat wave in July of 1945. When Robert Wells showed Mel Torme the opening lyrics he had written at his home in the Valley, he said, it was so damn hot today, I thought I could write something to cool off. And he did. Like, it wasn't even like a fully realized lyric. It was more just notes. It was like chestnuts roasting on an open fire, dot, 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 Jack Frost nipping yeah. at your. He was writing just sort of these mantras of like thinking of cold weather, thinking of like cold motifs. Yeah. Because it was so sweltering that day. Right. In July. That's funny. And this entire song was then completed by the two men in 45 minutes. Whoa. Yeah. So he just mentioned to Mel Torme that he had been working on these motifs, and then they sat down and wrote it together. I think basically. one of them actually sat down at the piano and just saw these notes at the piano and was like, what's this? Oh, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I just been wanted yeah. to cool off today. I have these <laughs> visions of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Isn't it great to be able to just write music? <laughs> like if you knew how to play an instrument, you could actually start composing things. Uh, I wish. I know, honestly, it seems so cool. When they could just I would love to just sit down at the piano and start like doodling around and be like, oh, what about this? Just tinkling. <laughs> yeah, it's like tinkling my fantasy. On some keys. No, yeah. there's no way I'd ever be able to pull anything like that off. No, me either. But I do uh, I like the I love the feel of it though, or hearing about it. I feel like we could write a Christmas song though. <laughs> It would be like a dirty Christmas. It would song. it would be disgusting, but I feel like if we are going to write any kind of music, it would be a Christmas song. Yeah, cuz there's kind of a formula, yes. I think. Even if it's not like 100% the same, there's some there's like some points you have to hit. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now, I got to say, prior to this episode, the Christmas song just has not been one of my favorite Christmas songs. It's it's just not until I heard this stripped down version this week. Yeah. 
the original 1946 version. I like, I, it's not one of my favorites, but I've, I don't mind it. And I always am happy to hear Nat King Cole. Yeah. So that's sort of where I'm at with that song. I definitely have others I love uh, way more. Yeah. Now, the first version of this song, the one I mentioned, was recorded with the Nat King Cole trio. But another version with strings was soon recorded after. There are many versions of this song that Nat recorded. But the most well-known version, the one you're probably hearing in your head, listeners at home, is the 1961 recording that Nat King Cole did. Like I said, my favorite is the original 1946 version with the trio. In 1946... Post-war America was hungry for a song like the Christmas song, whereas previous Christmases, these Christmas songs depicted longing, like in I'll Be Home for Christmas or White Christmas. Right. The Christmas song told a story of the Christmas joy that was happening in the present now that the war is over. Oh, yeah. And when the whole family was home. So that's the story of how the Christmas song came to be. Hey, we're back to tell you about a few more things exclusive to AMC Plus that we think you'll love, including the next true crime series you'll obsess over, Dez, starring Doctor Who's David Tennant as real-life serial killer Dennis Nilsson. Want to get lost in an addictive, bingeable drama? Check out Riviera, a Sundance Now original starring Julia Stiles. Catch up on season one and season two of the sun-soaked thriller and don't miss season three, which is now streaming. If you're looking for something that Metro calls, quote, more than a touch of Tarantino, watch the powerful new drama Gangs of London. AMC Plus is available on all your devices, ad-free and on demand. Watch the new series, episodes, movies, and fresh content anytime, anywhere. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. That's amcplus.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. In 1948, Nat and Maria bought a house in Hancock Park. They moved in with their young adopted daughter, Carol, who was previously Maria's sister's daughter before she died. Hancock Park was another all-white neighborhood in Los Angeles, and the residents were furious at the idea of a black family moving in. The white residents created the Hancock Park Property Owners Association to organize efforts to get the Coles out of their neighborhood. Musician George Benson pointed out, quote, All the people in the neighborhood, they all had his records in their homes, but they signed a petition to get him out. These were just... These are just the worst people. What? I I just can't even comprehend. When their white neighbors weren't busy pursuing legal action, they enacted other violent racist campaigns of harassments against the Coles. They posted signs on their front lawn with racial slurs. They poisoned their dog. (gasps) And they burned the N-word into their lawn. Jesus. There were also assassination attempts made on the Coles while they were living here. A man fired a shotgun through the Coles window. Now, thankfully, the family was out of town when this happened. Right. But this was just another incident in many incidents that would happen over the years. I mean, it just became, quote unquote, like you know, normal everyday occurrences that their own neighbors were harassing them right. and being violent with them. And this is a very nice neighborhood in LA. Yes. Like it's very, it's like historical and kind of old school, but very wealthy. It's a very, it's still a very yes. wealthy neighborhood, mm-hmm. gorgeous, beautiful, big homes and incredibly racist white people we're living in this neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, historically, they did not want black people living in this neighborhood. So when the Cole family moved in, it was like... they, yeah. they Bad. Were, yeah, it was really like they were awful. But the white terrorists who sought to oust the Coles from their home had no legal grounds, as decided by a landmark Supreme Court case that same year, which barred segregated housing in California. So the Coles remained in that house for many years to come. And on February 6, 1950, Nat and Maria's daughter Natalie was born. 
Though Nat continued to have success in the music industry and was making a ton of money, his experiences with racism were far from over. No matter their political affiliation, many prominent black Americans were suspected of being communists. We talked about this. We have talked about this before. We talked about it in our Gladys Bentley episode. Mm -hmm. We did an episode about uh, McCarthy era Los Angeles in our Robert Lee's episode a while ago. This is something this is like historically black Americans were targeted, especially black entertainers. J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI put Nat on their list of possible subversives. Conversely, the media depicted the Cole family as a wholesome, all-American happy family. In 1957, Nat was interviewed on CBS's program Person to Person from his Hancock Park home. Viewers were treated to a tour of the Cole household with Maria showing the living room furnishings and their two little girls, Carol and Natalie, playing with their new litter of puppies. It was just wholesome and adorable beyond belief. But these media depictions of the Coles as an aspirational family unit did little to combat the very real racism that continued to exist in America. The previous year, in 1956, Nat began a tour of the South with British big band leader Ted Heath. He started in Texas performing six shows there, and then they went on to Louisiana. And on April 10th, 1956, Nat was performing a concert at the Birmingham Municipal Auditorium in Alabama with the Ted Heath Band for an all-white audience in the segregated South. Later that night, Nat was scheduled to perform there for a black audience. 4,000 audience members were in attendance that night as Nat and the Ted Heath Band began their show. They were performing their third song of the night, Little Girl, when a group of men rushed the stage. (sighs) The men were members of the North Alabama Citizens Council. Now, this group was just a faction of the KKK. Right. This KKK group was led by Asa Earl Carter, who was a lifelong racist piece of shit from Anniston, Alabama, who would go on to become George Wallace's speechwriter. Oh, my God. He penned the infamous segregation now, segregation forever line. I mean, this guy was just, when you think of like world-class pieces of shit, this guy, he's one of them. Though Ace Carter wasn't at the concert that night, he organized this attack. One of the assailants, Kenneth Adams, who I saw a picture of, by the way, he's disgusting. (laughs) He tackled Nat and threw him to the floor. (sighs) During the scuffle, Nat was hit with a falling microphone. Mm. According to the band, the Ted Heath's band, the drummer, Lee Young, this is what he said of the incident. Quote, Nat started singing and we heard some woman screaming. They're going to get him. Guys came down the aisle and one guy reached up. But the police knew about it because they must have had 15 or 20 detectives backstage. And one guy reached up and grabbed Nat by the ankle and pulled him down. And another guy jumped up on stage and hit him. But by that time, the detectives had them and they were taking these guys away. 19-year-old concert goer John Burchard had traveled from Vermont to see the show. And this is what he said about that night. Quote, There was instant chaos, the audience on its feet, screaming. Before you could blink, there was what seemed like a hundred cops on stage, grappling with the four white men dragging them away. 
Now the audience was shouting, cursing. My friend and I were, of course, stunned at what had happened, and now a couple of Yankees in a strange land, we were scared that the all-white audience might be calling for Cole's blood. But no, they were angry at what had just taken place, calling for the scalps of the rednecks who had attacked Cole and ruined the evening. In the midst of the confusion, the curtain had come down. Nat and his guys had disappeared, and the crowd was milling about when the curtain rose again. This time, a scene of musicians from the Ted Heath band scrambled, scrambling into their chairs. Amidst the chaos, someone had ordered Heath to play the national anthem, and to add to the bizarre quality of the night, the Brits launched into God Save the Queen. <laughs> Jesus. That is like an absurd... I mean, I can picture the vibe oh was my so God. intense. Oh that my God. People just did not know what to do because that is so chaotic. It's so chaotic. It's like this horrible, violent thing just happened, and this band is like, uh, Should we play? Should we start? <laughs> yeah. Should we keep? It's literally playing while the Titanic's going yeah, down. Yeah, but almost at the same time, maybe they felt like it would calm the people down so more chaos didn't happen. I have no <sighs> idea. It's so, yeah. I just think it's so w- absurd that they started playing it God Save felt, the Queen. It must have felt weird being there like for multiple reasons <laughs> like oh my god it's that's so, tense yeah fortunately though nat was not seriously injured he did hurt his back but nothing that required any kind of hospitalization after the attack nat returned to the stage and said quote i just came here to entertain you that's what i thought you wanted i was born in alabama those folks hurt my back i cannot continue because i need to see a doctor Aww. Nat went on later to perform the late show for the all-black audience that night. Now, the six men who attacked Nat were charged with assault and attempted murder. Three men were arrested immediately following the attack. Those men were 23-year-old Willie Richard Vinson, 35-year-old Kenneth Adams, and 43-year-old Jesse Mabry. uh, The other three men were arrested later. Police searched the car that the assailants had arrived in at the venue, and they found rifles and brass knuckles. <gasps> and it was later discovered that this attack that they had planned was actually planned to have been much larger. Asa Carter wanted over 100 men to descend upon this concert. Oh, my God. To attack Nat, but only six showed up. Jesus. Just horrific, right? Yes. Though Nat contributed money to the NAACP and the Montgomery bus boycott, many civil rights activists took umbrage with the fact that Nat was still playing for segregated audience audiences. Mm-hmm. So in the wake of this attack, there were people who were like, you know, you should not, you should boycott segregated audiences. Yeah. Like you shouldn't continue playing for them anymore. Roy Wilkins, who was the executive secretary of the NAACP at the time, he sent Nat a telegram after this incident, and he said, quote, you have not been a crusader or engaged in an effort to change the customs or laws of the South. That responsibility, newspapers quote you as saying, you leave to the other guys. That attack upon you clearly indicates that organized bigotry makes no distinction between those who do not actively challenge racial discrimination and those who do. This is a fight which none of us can escape. We invite you to join us in a crusade against racism. Now, Nat would later participate right. and become more vocal, and he would later participate in the 1963 March on Washington. And he did become more vocal politically, yeah. I think. Nat was famously known at that time beforehand as being like very apolitical. Yes. Um, 
so yeah, I just wanted to give context of like what people were saying at the time, what uh-huh. was going on. A month following the attack, Nat was invited to the White House Correspondents' Dinner where he met President Eisenhower, and later that summer he sang at the Republican National Convention. And in November of 1956, the Nat King Cole Show premiered on NBC. Nat was one of the first black performers to have their own national TV show. Now, prior to him, Hazel Scott hosted the Hazel Scott Show. Oh. Kind of want to do an episode on her. She yeah. had a really interesting life. Though Nat's weekly television program ended after 42 episodes, Nat began to appear in films as an actor around this time, rather than just as himself. Yeah. He had appeared in several films right, as, as a himself. Musician, yeah. As a musician, he had been on television for years right. at this point. So now he's venturing into acting. In 1957, he appeared in the films Istanbul and China Gate. And in 1958, he starred in the film St. Louis Blues with Pearl Bailey. On January 19, 1961, Nat performed at the inaugural ball for President John F. Kennedy. Other performers included Harry Belafonte and Ella Fitzgerald. This was the beginning of his relationship with JFK, Kennedy would also make an appearance that year at Nat's oldest daughter's debutante ball. Now, Frank Sinatra produced this show that they performed at because Frank Sinatra, like, he had a relationship with the Kennedys as well. So he put together all these musicians. He put together these musicians. And Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole, they also had a friendship for a long time, too. Back in 1955, when Las Vegas barred black people, including the performers, from patronizing their hotels and casinos, Sinatra saw to it that his friends Nat King Cole and Harry Belafonte were allowed to be there. And by the early 60s, with continued pressure from both Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr., the Sands would become integrated. Oh. I mean, I was just reading these stories about the, like all the hotel and casinos in Las Vegas at the time. They would have black performers, but they were not even allowed to use... Like They weren't allowed to play cards there. They weren't allowed to patronize the, the dining rooms. Well, that was like we talked about in the Dorothy Dandridge. She it was, wasn't allowed to go in the pool and they drained exactly, the pool. Yeah. It was exactly the same thing. It's like they want the black entertainment, right? but God forbid they stay at your fucking stupid hotel. Yeah. So Sammy Davis Jr. and Sinatra applied a lot of pressure to the Sands Hotel in particular to be, make it become integrated. 1964, Nat began to experience health problems. He was a lifelong heavy smoker and had developed lung cancer. That same year, he collapsed after a performance at the Sands Casino. In December of 1964, Nat went to the hospital where doctors discovered he had a tumor in his lung. His lung would later have to be removed. Oh my God. 
While staying in the hospital, Nat received an abundance of get well soon cards and calls from family and friends. Apparently, this was the most the hospital had ever seen. Wow. In the days before his death, Nat left the hospital to visit his children at the Cole home in Hancock Park and to take a short car ride with Maria in Santa Monica, which is where he was hospitalized. But even with the removal of a lung, the cancer had spread uncontrollably. Nat died on February 15th, 1965, at the age of 45. Oh my gosh. He was so young. That's so young. Nat's daughter, Natalie, went on to have a very successful singing career. Right. In 1975, she released the song, This Will Be, which I would say is like the quintessential rom-com song. Yeah. Like every <laughs> every rom-com I grew up with, had that song in it. Yeah. It's I a, mean, it is a movie soundtrack It is song. a classic song. Yeah. You all know this song. <laughs> so this is like her first hit, and this is like... That's a huge hit. I, I mean, this song is such a big hit that like people still play it today. Yeah. It's iconic. Uh, this went on to win her a Grammy for Best Female R&B Performance. Oh. And Natalie had a very long music career herself, like her father. She also did some acting, guest starring on television shows like Law & Order SVU, Grey's Anatomy, and Touched by an Angel. Natalie struggled with drug addiction for much of her life, leading to arrests, family drama, and serious health problems. And on December 31st, 2015, Natalie died of congestive heart failure at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I would really like to do an episode I think so too. On Natalie Cole, she had a very she had a lot going on. She had a very interesting life and career. And then they had their hit together. And then they unforgettable. <laughs> that was like the first that was like the first example of that singing and hologram? doing a the I don't even it wasn't a hologram necessarily. Like I remember the video, so they yeah. had like images of him. It was before holograms. Yes. But then the recordings were his real voice, obviously. You know, that song was a big song for him as well. Right. And they kind of sang it together. I remember when she was like on all the shows singing that song. That was a huge hit. Do we want to explain to our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about? Is it possible that people don't know what we're talking about? Yes. Okay. Oh, Natalie Cole released a version of her dad's song, Unforgettable, but as a duet. So her father, it's her father singing... The song and then her singing also like a counterpoint. Yeah, yeah, it's a duet. Yeah, it's very sweet. Yeah, but it was a huge. It was everywhere. It was a big hit. I think it was around that time too, where old standards were like every pop star was putting out like an old standards this album. This is a very yeah. like nineties move for these singers who have been around for a while. Right, they put out standards yeah a cd of standards and this was that this was a big one for sure it was huge yeah i feel like i saw her perform this on like oprah or something it was everywhere when it came out yeah i think like (laughs) she did i feel like she did the whole talk show circuit and then when she would perform it live they would have like her dad superimposed up like above her like on a screen yes. or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I remember it. I, I have such a strong visual of what I those too. performances <laughs> Yes, like. I do too. I do too. Yeah. Um, but I would, she does have a, like a biography. I think it's actually a memoir. 
Uh, I'm pretty sure Natalie Cole wrote a memoir. Anyway, I want to read it because I really would like to do an episode on her in the future. Yeah. She had a very interesting life, and I know she has a ton of interesting stories from her life in the 70s as a singer. Also, Natalie's older sister, Carol, who, by the way, her nickname was Cookie, Aww. which Cookie's one of my favorite names. She went on to become an actress and a music producer. And Carol actually, Desi, you sent me this article about Carol Cole because she had a daughter when she was very young. Oh, right. She wasn't married, but she had a daughter when she was very young. And Maria, her mother, uh, made her give it up for adoption. Okay. But then years later, like in 2002, this daughter discovered that her grandfather was Nat King Cole. Okay. Interesting. That's like every adoption adopted person's dream. I know. That your person is famous. That or you're related to a famous. That your grandpa's Nat King Cole. Yeah. That's like literally everyone's dream. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Or you come from royalty. Yeah, there's some kind of... I mean, that was my dream and I wasn't adopted. It's like, maybe I was adopted. <laughs> you just wanted to be adopted in general. You yeah. didn't want to come from the stock I was you like, came did from. they adopt me and I'm really from like a cool family? <laughs> Alas, no. No. Um, okay, cool. Well, that's, That was good. I didn't know a lot about him. Yeah. I mean, he had a very full life, a very, I mean, it's tragically cut short. He's just... So young. So I forgot how young he was when he died, but he... And he was really 45, not 43. <laughs> that was no, his real was, age at that point. He was 45, yeah, because he was born in 1919. He, okay. He died in 1965. Very... Very big, prolific career, though. I mean, I mean, he, he did a lot in those years. He was nonstop working for literally thirty years. He started working when he was fifteen. Right. He did not stop. Yeah, and that's why we have so much music. We have, so and much. I feel like that's why we are shocked when we found out how young he is. Right. He did do so much. Yeah. Um, okay, but we want to thank our Patreon. Yeah. Do you want to do patrons this week? I could I could do it. Let me pull it up. Do you think I can do it? I think you can do it just <laughs> as good as I do it. Do you want to give them the website? Yes. So if you would like to become a patron, you can go to Patreon. Sorry, I can't do it. Patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Uh, there's a hundred episodes of bonus content that you will have access to immediately. So if you ran out of episodes, that's a great way to uh, get some more juicy content. (laughs) I mean, we've talked before. They're definitely a little more raunchy. There's a variety of stuff over on Patreon, so you'll have a lot of fun, I think. Yeah. Um, So let me see who donated this week. We have Kristen, Rachel, Hannah, another Kristen, Natalie, Molly, Prim. Wait, it says Prim and Escobar. I didn't want to leave Escobar out. I had to open it up. <laughs> we have Jason and Brittany. That's another couple. Yeah. We got some couples this week. Yeah. We have uh, Siobhan. Oh. We have Fraser. We have Nicole, Hunter, and we have Lupe, Heather, Jagger, Kaylee, Mary, Bella, uh, Alish, Alish. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. And Terry. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. Did I do a good job, you, Rachel? Desi, <laughs> you get a cookie. Ooh, cookie. I mean, do you still have Tate's? I, 
Did you eat them all? Desi, I ate them all oh last night. I ate the whole box last night by myself. Honestly, it's not hard to do. Tates are very light. <laughs> Don't you agree? I always that think is a very light. It's a cookie. light cookie. It's so easy to eat that whole fucking box, and it's not that big of a box it's, either. It's five cookies in each row. <laughs> I ate all ten last night. They're very tiny. They weigh nothing. They weigh nothing. No, they're very light and crispy. Uh, was there anything else we need to touch on? No, but we will see you guys for our mini episode on Friday. Oh, yes. Goodbye. Bye.